If you want to understand how marketing is changing and how that will affect your brand, you need Future Proof, the podcast from Kantar that tells you how to find growth. Created in conjunction with Side Business School at Oxford University, the Future Proof podcast provides a unique perspective on what truly makes a difference. To understand what's winning in marketing, subscribe to Future Proof, a Kantar podcast now. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This is Internet Marketing. Hello and welcome to the Internet Marketing Podcast brought to you by Site Visibility. I'm your host, Scott Colnut, and today with me is Alex Price, founder of 93 Digital. And we're going to be talking about essential B2B website conversion techniques. Thanks for joining me, Alex. Thanks for having me, Scott. Looking forward to talking. Uh, me too. And it's it's not often that I delve into B2B specifically, so I'm really interested to speak at things from that angle today. And I'm also interested in where WordPress is going in terms of its future and your experiences as a WordPress developer. But before we get into all of that, do you want to introduce yourself to our listeners a little bit about your background, any company goals or mission statements you want to share? Yeah, sounds good. So thanks again for having me. I'm I'm looking forward to to chatting all things B2B and web web design specifically. I I guess, um, so yeah, I'm the founder and MD of 93Digital. We are a strategic uh, WordPress agency. So we specialize in UX design development uh, of WordPress sites. And within that, we, from a kind of industry solution perspective, focus quite heavily on working with, with B2B businesses. Even within that, specifically B2B technology, software, SaaS companies is kind of our main vertical, but we, we work with a number of other sectors as well. So B2B makes up probably the majority of our work. We do a bit of work with some publishers and some not-for-profits um, and a few other sectors too. Uh, but very B2B focused overall. And so we've got a team of about 25 people across UX design, uh, development, project management, digital strategy. Uh, we've got a separate side to the agency called 93X, which is just where we do digital marketing type work, sometimes for our B2B clients. So uh, yeah, it's a bit of a, a mix, but as I say, B2B is, is really our focus. And so the agency was grown out of myself freelancing initially. So I started freelancing with WordPress a lot. I was kind of working with lots of different CMSs at the time, but ended up focusing on WordPress, settling on WordPress. I guess when it was still, I'm sure you remember yourself, a relatively arbitrary kind of small site tool. It was it was more than a blogging tool, but it wasn't quite an enterprise CMS. And some people might argue that it's still not an enterprise CMS, but we can have that debate later. And yeah, I kind of watched it grow. And I guess by making that decision, was able to kind of grow with it as well. Um, so I think we've kind of been riding this wave of seeing more and more uh, large businesses adopt WordPress as a CMS, uh, recognize that they don't need to be spending tons of money on big proprietary platforms and hundreds of thousands on license fees. Um, when WordPress can do a lot of the things they want to do, we can do bits of personalization, we can do multilingual. So a lot of the features that come up regularly in, in projects for us 
you know, regularly integrating with HubSpot and Pardot and Marketo and very marketing focused, uh, B2B marketing focused projects that we deliver. Um, and so our, our mission statement as a business is to empower the ambitious marketers that we work with for success. So really for us, it's about creating the platforms that sit at the heart of growth for our, our B2B clients and I guess support the buyer journey from, from end to end from a digital marketing angle. Uh, but I'm sure we'll dive a lot more into that. But hopefully that gives you a bit of a, a summary in a nutshell. It's a it's a good summary, and we'll definitely touch back on that topic about WordPress and how it's developed over the years because that's something I'm really interested in. But I am curious to know. I understand the de- going from being a WordPress developer and then building that side and then building an agency. But the thing that I am interested about is this specialism in B two B. Can you maybe explain where that specialism comes from? Yeah, so it's a good question. I guess going all the way back to the beginning when I was freelancing, I was kind of freelancing across design and development and some digital marketing so i was doing some some seo i've always been a kind of big seo fan uh since i've been working in the industry and i was a bit of a jack of all trades and master of none really i was doing a bit of everything but i guess for me i was always looking at the website projects we were delivering through the lens of how do they fit into the bigger picture from a marketing angle Mm. um and so I think whilst a lot of WordPress developers are very focused on how do they write great lines of code and features and functionality and things that they can do and customizing it, I think I've always looked at, at what we do very much from the angle of all of that stuff's great, but really the the reason that we're doing this is because the client we're working with has some objectives to achieve. There's some mm. KPIs attached to this project, whether that's increasing organic search visibility, whether that's increasing improving lead generation, conversion rates, um, whatever it might be. You know, this isn't about just great design or great well-written code in itself. It's about how both of those things come together, but also align strategically with what the client's trying to achieve. So I guess I've always been relatively holistic from that point of view. And then really just saw WordPress gaining traction and saw that niche kind of opening up um, and was getting a lot of feedback from clients who were really loving working with the platform, finding it very easy. I'd been working with bits of, Joomla and Drupal and other things and just you know Adobe Dreamweaver and um, HTML files and all kind of random stuff when I first started freelancing but I kept coming back to WordPress as the one that I felt like was really growing and so I guess from there it was then you know for the first few years of of WordPress developer WordPress agency and that transition from freelance to agency we, we were quite generic in terms of really taking on anything that was to do with WordPress or at least exploring taking it on and I think, as as you'll know yourself, clients like specialism, particularly with smaller agencies. You know, we we have to accept the fact that we're not a, a a thousand person global agency with five offices and twenty different teams. I think that's my my heart always sinks when I I go on a an agency website and I see a team of four people and then they describe themselves as a, a full service agency. I just think you can't do everything with a team of four people. And so I I think I think I quite re- quite early on recognized in the journey that we had to be quite focused we had to be quite niche we had to be quite specialist as a small agency and i think there's no agency that just woke up on day one as full service generous agency that can do anything all of them have got there eventually by pivoting and acquiring and scaling in different directions and opening up opportunities to good account management no one just launched an agency and was full service from from day one because if you are i think the only way you can compete is on on cost and you're in this kind of horrible race to the bottom from a, a price perspective. So that was kind of my, my wider viewpoint on 
you know, really believing that agencies should be focused, should be niche. And so we spent a few years as generalist WordPress agency, but I think then naturally through some case studies kind of leading to to others, um, started almost accidentally delivering a bit of a, a B2B focus. But I think I, in, in doing so, really became fascinated by B2B marketing and, and its complexity. I think you know, I'm, I'm interested in digital marketing generally, but I think in the B2B space, I was, I've always been fascinated by the length of some of the buyer journeys of the clients that we work with and how it can be anywhere from a few months through to sometimes years of, of gradual nurturing before, you know, a decision making unit decides to go with a, a big enterprise technology solution. And so I find the intricacies of and the challenges that come with that kind of journey and attribution and um, all the things that uh, come with that to be really fascinating. Um, and I think it's also a space that you know, I think every agency wants to work with the big consumer brands, right? Everyone wants to have a Coca-Cola logo and a Nike logo and all of those kind of brands. And for whatever reason, I've never been um, that attracted to that side of the work. I've always been really fascinated by, by technology, by B2B. Um, and so that's kind of how we've ended up diving more and more into the, the b2b specialism so a bit of a long-winded way of getting to the answer but hopefully that's a, a summary <laughs> no it's fascinating actually because it sounds like the b2b specialism is driven a lot by your natural curiosity and satisfaction which from someone from a, uh, a development background a particularly wordpress development background you know I, i've met a lot of designers and i've spoken to a lot of designers and people from that background and it's very rare that you hear them being focused on the end objective um, again, I've worked with a lot of agencies that are very focused on the aesthetic of the website. And from a marketing perspective, that's one of, one of my biggest challenges over the years is that someone builds a new website and forgets what its intention is. And, yeah, it's uh, a really tough one because I think there's so many, I mean, there's, there's, you know, how many different types of agency there are, right? There's brand led agencies, there's design, creative development. And I think it's always been our ambition and, and we're getting there over time. I think we've done a really good job over the last year, but it's not easy to, to be as deep and focused from a specialism angle within UX and design, within development in the WordPress ecosystem and within digital strategy marketing more generally. I think a lot of agencies lose sight of the fact that they're usually working with a head of marketing, a CMO, a Mm. digital marketing manager, whatever it is. And they're a marketer with marketing objectives, reporting on marketing numbers. And then agencies go in and and try and sell widgets and features and functionalities without tying those back to why they're doing it or you know the the reasoning behind things and how it will feed into them achieving their objectives so yeah it's uh, something that I think a lot about and I'm kind of really really big on overall I think it's really key for for all agencies is that ever difficult for you to personally manage amongst creative people in your team and I say that in context of I imagine sometimes that when you personally might be dealing with more creative designers they probably want to experiment with certain features, certain design techniques that won't necessarily have a business goal or the business impact that you're thinking and you have in mind. Curious to know whether that's a, a challenge that you come up against often. Yeah, it's a really good question. It's something that we've definitely come up against, I guess, in, particularly in the last year or so, we've had some kind of agency-wide goals and objectives mm. and had a lot of initiatives to try and kind of back those up, You know, one of which was commercial understanding one of which was client focus um to really constantly connecting all of the team back to you know what's driving the projects we work on why they're happening and what the objective is 
so there's small things we can do like we we bring all of our team um even if they might not be touching a project for three months once it's finished discovery and ux and design and everything so a developer for example will still come to the very initial kickoff meeting with the client with all the stakeholders and we really focus on why the project's happening what are they looking to get from it and so that's it sounds like an obvious example but just one small way of getting an entire team understanding how what they do and what they're so specialist in and what they're expert at fits into our clients achieving their objective but you're right to acknowledge that it, it can be tough and to some extent we don't want to we don't want to keep people focused entirely on that like as a designer you need some some creative free reign as a developer you want to kind of push the limits of what can be done so i think it's it's about letting people kind of experiment and and push as far as they can but just making sure that there's this kind of underlying um message of that's reiterated across projects across culture across team generally of this is why we're doing what we're doing Mm. i appreciate this is going to be a tough question to answer as well but on a similar train of thought there I assume that you must also have to deal with the situations where a client or potential client wants something that's maybe something design related or a functionality of a website that's purely built out of vanity or purely (laughs) wanted out of vanity. And yet, you know, from the business standpoint or from the conversion standpoint, it's just not useful to have. Are there any examples of things that, that like that that come up often and, Maybe if you could describe how you deal with those situations. Yeah, good question. I guess the challenge is that you're right in observing that we're, we're dealing with a discipline which is eventually in some form or another quite visually uh, apparent, right? And we output something that can be seen and used by people. And with that, anything in the design sphere comes the possibility that people input from a purely subjective standpoint. It's their opinion, their perspective on something. And so a lot of our processes as an agency are built around taking what I broadly describe as a, a very evidence-based approach to why we make certain decisions. So every project we deliver starts with quite thorough discovery definition type work, which is a chance to kind of align with the client, remove risk, but also do all of the strategic thinking. You know, we might do bits of SEO research, analytics, audits, um, user journey mapping, all of those kind of things, the stuff that really lays the foundations of a successful project and so that really helps us to when we get to the latter stages of a project or when we get to sharing deliverables with the client we have strong basis on which to say this is why we've made this decision this is why we're suggesting this is the answer so we we've never ever approached projects from an angle of let's just design something come up with three or four different examples and see which one the client prefers mm-hmm. for us there's a, a scientific approach that should be followed which in th- theory should almost result in kind of one output so rather than there being a ton of options if we're understanding the user journeys we're doing thorough research we're mapping out sitemaps and ias in line with you know all of that research we're then bringing the client's brand guidelines which are hopefully defined into the mix the actual final kind of homepage design of a site is really just the culmination of lots of other elements mm-hmm. and there's very little room for opinion to come into it now having said that there's plenty of opportunities for people to find ways of, of working that kind of stuff in. I guess we, we share some feedback with clients on you know, this is how we like to receive uh, feedback from you. This is the best way of giving it how to, because I think there really is an art to, to giving feedback to an agency in a way that 
kind of justifies why you're thinking about things in a certain way. But broadly speaking, the evidence-based approach we take should avoid the any room for kind of I prefer the green button over the blue button. Like we sh- we shouldn't we just shouldn't be having those kind of discussions. Hopefully, so yeah, I'm sure there's been examples in the past of client projects where you know, we've had messages from a client saying, "Can we can we move this ten pixels to the left?" or "That looks a bit off." Or and there's not often. I think that the most difficult feedback to process is when there's no kind of reasoning as to why they think that's wrong. So it's purely we want this to be moved here, but little little context or uh, reasoning as to the reason why. Um, and I think the reason why is what's really important for our design team to understand to, mm. to consider feedback properly. But yeah, you uh, you ask questions. Uh, sounding like a man that's been through this before <laughs> <laughs> i've definitely been through that before from a marketing perspective design perspective and yeah I, I guess the principles are the same one thing i'm really interested about that you just said is that i'm paraphrasing but you said something along, along the lines of you explain to clients how to get the best out of you by giving feedback or how to give feedback to get the best out of you that's something that i've not really thought about too much before so is that something that you do very early on in the process of working with a new client? Yeah, so we, I guess we start setting some of those expectations quite early on in the discovery definition kind of kickoff phases. I think we've got some resources that we sometimes share with clients, um, which I think is quite literally just a document saying like this is how to how to give feedback. So our project managers might share some of that when we share designs or deliverables with a client. But I think it's important to to lay a lot of those foundations really early on. Um, I think the the sooner you can manage expectations on that front the better for for both sides ultimately um it's not just about agency having it as easy as possible i think it's just about you know a lot of our clients are are in difficult stakeholder situations generally so even if we're working with one marketer who's very independent raring to go feeling quite empowered quite often projects start and they will be quickly dragged down by others in different departments or yeah, other colleagues who really don't understand what goes into a project like this and how much uh, how much work there is and the process and they haven't been through it before they just kind of randomly feed in requirements at certain stages or they want to be uh, inputting on feedback and uh, reviewing deliverables at certain stages so I think the sooner that we can I often, I often say to the team that managing expectations isn't just about communicating to the one client stakeholder it's about then empowering them to manage expectations of those around them they need to be able to go back to their boss or their colleagues and say, this is where the project's at. This is what we need next. This is when you should expect to have to input some time. And so our role as an agency, I think, is to make that as, as straightforward as possible. Interesting. I think that's some great advice there and some that I'm probably going to go back and apply within our team. Uh, so, yeah, thanks for that. And uh, I want to go more into the this aspect of B2B conversion techniques and your experience and lessons building B2B websites. But before we go into the detail of that, I'm curious to know, as a starting point, what you see as the differences between building B2C and B2B websites. Could you maybe speak on the major differences, maybe during planning, maybe during building those type of websites and the considerations that you have to factor in? Yeah, definitely. It's a good question. So I think broadly, particularly within the field of user experience generally, I think there's there's a big chunk of it, which is just best practice, right? So there's there's things that are principles they're almost the sciencey parts of UX that I think apply across everything, you know, minimizing cognitive load, the gestalt principles, all these things that our team often reference that B2C or B2B or otherwise, they're best practices from a, a general UX angle. But when we dig into the 
a difference a bit more. I think it ultimately comes down to first thinking, well, what is the buyer journey, which we, we mentioned a bit earlier. So you know, if you're looking to uh, sell, you know, create a website, an e-commerce website that sells socks, um, you know, you're, you've got uh, some different considerations in terms of the steps of the, the digital journey for a site like that than you do selling a you know, two hundred fifty thousand pounds contract value piece of enterprise software to a multinational with eight people in the decision making unit, which is going to take nine months. And so, I think B two C sites, and I'm probably generalizing a bit. You know, there are some B two C purchases which are complex. You know, things like buying a car is often related to B two B and its complexity in terms of multiple stakeholders. You've got to take the take the missus with you and make sure that she's happy too. You've got to think about the kids. You know, there's there are p- multiple people involved, but Broadly, B2C is, I guess, typically a bit more focused in terms of call to actions and what it's asking from the user. Whereas in a B2B site, with the longer buyer journey in mind, there might be more functions to a site at different stages of that journey. So there might be multiple different call to actions, whether that's request a demo or get in touch or speak to someone. Um, We might need to be thinking about uh, supporting the the buyer journey with enough content from a B2B perspective. So I think you know, a lot of B2B journeys are very content driven generally. Uh, I think in B2C, often when the intent is there, the purchase is ready to be made and sales cycle is much shorter. In B2B, we often find that we need lots of resources and white papers and general content to to educate and uh, nurture prospects across the, the journey overall. So we, I guess we kind of view a B2B site as almost as much of a, a sales enablement tool as it is a just an acquisition conversion tool, if that makes sense. But hopefully those are some some top level differences that we can, can dive into in a bit more detail. Yeah, and as you've just uh, touched on buying journeys, I wanted to ask you about that process as well, because I, it kind of stood out to me as I was re- reading through your site that the process that you go through to essentially try and match a B2B website and its functionality with whatever you're aware of the buying journey from from their customers, from your clients' customers. So I just wanted to know practically, how does that process work for you? And for example, is it is it a scientific-led approach where you're looking at data, analytics, and attribution, and then matching that to a design build? Or is it kind of flip chart, whiteboards, pens out, what do we, and making assumptions about the buyer journey? What processes do you go through? Or is it a mix of both? Yeah, good question. So I think it is a bit of a mix of both, but I think this all comes down to when we kick off a project and actually you asked in the last question, which I didn't touch on kind of what happens in the planning mm. phase of a project. And I think this is where all of this kind of starts to starts to happen. So every client comes to us, I guess, at a slightly different stage of their own journey from a digital marketing angle. Some clients come to us, you know, they might have a another external SEO agency. They might have just recently done some by journey mapping work, they might have user personas that are defined. They might have lots of things which are kind of ready to feed into a project. Other clients might have very little of that, or they might want us to do a lot of that work again, just to to sanity check it and make sure it's all up to date and ready to drive the project. Because um, these pieces of the puzzle really do drive the the project overall. So, depending on what the client's got, I think we will sometimes recommend doing a, a kind of customer journey mapping process in which we, as you as you correctly point out look at a number of different data sources so a mix of quantitative and qualitative data obviously we've got you know again different clients in different different positions but google analytics things like hotjar and heat mapping type tools can be handy too uh, obviously google analytics gives us generally the most data we will often be looking at talking to some of their 
some of marketing's colleagues in sales. So understanding the sales journey, how do you define leads at different stages? At what point you know, does a marketing qualified lead become the sales qualified lead? What's the handover process? One of the most interesting questions or bits of information we get within these projects when we ask the question to sales colleagues saying, what do you use the website for? Because um, I think marketing obviously uh, very regularly take ownership of a website as they as they should. But you know, marketing sales alignment is one of those topics that we always talk about. But a website's a great example of where simply asking sales, you know, what do you use the website for? Are there, are there bits of content that you regularly link to? Are there things that you regularly share with prospects? Um, after calls or those kind of things can be can be hugely insightful because as i say we with the length of the journey we often need to look at a website as as a a sales enablement tool overall rather than purely a an acquisition tool so there's a lot of gathering of information across data sources and talking to people which helps us to build that picture and and i think you kind of touched on an interesting point which is kind of do we build the site to align with the current buyer journey or actually are we trying to use the site to fundamentally change the buyer journey that the mm-hmm. user is going on um, and i think there's quite a key difference because sometimes the client will come to us and say you know a big part of all the work we're doing at the moment is to shorten the sales cycle you know on average at six months we want it to become five or you know four or something and so it's a sometimes a tricky tricky one to ask the client are we saying to the client what's the current buyer journey and just simply capturing that or are we doing that and then as a kind of phase two mapping out what we want it to become and so that that is kind of client preference sometimes and it really does depend on where the client's at but we do sometimes do both and that process is again as you say often in a room or hopefully when it's not COVID at least in a room with some notepads and a whiteboard and um, there's a different kind of workshops and exercises we can run to try and help capture that information but the final output from that should be a customer journey map which kind of breaks down the the different stages of the buyer journey. Um, and there's all kinds of different things we include on it. What type of content does the user need? How are they feeling at that time? You know, what's their biggest pain point or challenge? Um, what's the next call to action? Um, so there's this whole kind of matrix of things that we can we can feed into that again, uh, depending on the client. But that really is a great starting point just to take a top-level view of everything and to allow our design UX team to start thinking about how the website can support that overall. Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies... I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) I'm right there with you. <laughs> or music. The music in this show yeah. is absolutely yeah. incredible. Or anime. Yeah, and under this sure. mask is another mask. <laughs> <laughs> you can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday wherever you get your podcast, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. If you want to understand how marketing is changing and how that will affect your brand, you need Future Proof, the podcast from Kantar that tells you how to find growth. Created in conjunction with Side Business School at Oxford University, the Future Proof podcast provides a unique perspective on what truly makes a difference. 
To understand what's winning in marketing, subscribe to Future Proof, a Kantar podcast now. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hmm, it's really interesting reflecting on what you just said because in what you've just said lies the problem if you don't focus on the business goals of a website then you could for example go and build a website that's beautiful but doesn't actually meet the current your current audiences or your current customers buying journey in which case you've just alienated your entire audience or your, your entire customer base so just going through that process of planning or understanding more about the the buying journeys the goals for those customers is so important in the process of design at least in my opinion and it sounds like yours too definitely yeah it's one of those things where actually we we find that the work that we do there actually has quite big knock-on effects across lots of other things too Mm. um and so it's not just although the client's coming at it and we're looking at it from a very website project specific perspective at that point a lot of the work that we do might output in things that actually help make wider change across the business or to wider kind of digital marketing strategies. So yeah, it can, can start with a, a very website specific focus, but can open up all sorts of questions and which, which can be a barrier. Sometimes it can slow things down a bit, but mm. um, it's a healthy process to go through, I think. And touching on, uh, you talked about different aspects of B2B websites and acquisition. And basically you talked a little bit about the marketing funnel and how a website has to serve each stage of that funnel. But jumping into the the topic of this episode and the conversion aspects of that, I'm curious to know from your perspective, I can tell you're passionate about the topic, so I'm interested to know the conversion techniques that are top of mind for you when building B2B websites. So it could be features, it could be functionality, it could be marketing tactics that you've seen. I'm just curious to know from your perspective the things that excite you and the things that you know that work. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, I think across all of our clients, there's there's a real mix of different things we can throw in there. I think, uh, obviously, most of our projects are integrated with some kind of marketing automation tool. So mm. most of our data capture is going into a you know, Pardot, HubSpot, Marketo type tool. But we're always looking at how we can integrate different kind of features or functionalities into that, whether that's like a, you know, use our calculator to see, see how much you might save or to see how much money you might make or those kind of features, whether that's just more generic kind of gated content, white papers, resources of different kinds. I think one thing that is definitely a, a trend across all our projects is building out pretty extensive, quite thorough content hubs, knowledge hubs, resource hubs, whatever you want to whatever you want to call them. Um but these various kind of central locations which tie together hopefully some kind of free text search, but also f- tagging and filtering and sorting and searching to really help get the customer to what they're looking for as quickly as possible. Um, so that's, I think that's a def- definitely a big part of kind of frictionless journeys and making sure that the user can get to what they want. So I guess on a more simple level too, there's all of the usual, you know, clear call to actions and the best practices. I think there's always a lot of debate, particularly around our B2B tech clients around get in touch versus request a demo versus all of these kind of things. And again, some of that, that some of that is steered by uh, the client and their overall buyer journey and their team and how they process leads. But, um, that's always an interesting one to to think a little bit about. 
I guess pricing is one of those things too that, uh, particularly in the B two B kind of SaaS space, you know, do you display pricing on the website? How much pricing information do you give away? I think in certain cases we can see that work quite well for certain products. Equally, in certain cases, not. Um, I think the one thing I would say that I absolutely hate and drives me insane is when you go on a website and there's a button that says pricing and you click it and then it doesn't give you any pricing. Um, <laughs> and that seems to be a horrible B2B SaaS trend that I keep seeing where I guess the, the thinking is if I click on this, I'm then going to kind of be so close to converting that I'm going to want to get in touch anyway. But I always just feel kind of angry that I've been tricked into clicking on pricing, expecting. And again, it's a really good example of a very basic fundamental UX best practice, which is to kind of manage expectations and not promise people something that they're not going to get. When you click on pricing, if you're not going to have pricing on the page, just don't call it pricing, just call it something else. But it's not uncommon to see that where you click on pricing and then it just says, to find out our pricing, you need to set up a call, get in touch, whatever mm-hmm. it is. So I think that's, I personally think that ultimately limits conversions. I really, I really think that annoys more people than it, it seems to capture, but I might be wrong. I don't have the data to back that one up. But in terms of other things, I think the stuff that I'm most interested in is, as I say, looking at interactive features and um, elements that we can build into the site that is an opportunity for our clients to, to kind of capture conversions in a different way. Cause I think the power of what you can do just knowing you know, with a, with an email address captured or, um, you know, a cookie set in terms of retargeting and uh, remarketing and, you know, kind of nurturing and marketing automation, all the different things that are possible, getting a conversion of some kind with such a long buyer journey ahead often can be a, a really powerful thing to do. So, yeah, hopefully that gives you a sense of some of the things that we uh, we explore. Yeah, I was just thinking, actually, that in terms of it's quite naively, I was thinking about WordPress and I want to come on to the different challenges that WordPress faces in the years ahead and all of the competition. But I was thinking actually one of the real benefits of WordPress still, as it has been over the years, is is in integrations with partner kind of automation tools. Yeah. And I was from a B2B perspective, if you're launching a website that and you're thinking about marketing automation or you really already have marketing automation in place, then WordPress must be near the top of that list because of its ease of integrations. I'm assuming that's what you see a lot. And that's also one reason why you go down that WordPress route, not only obviously being a specialist, but because there's so many existing integrations that make it a lot easier from a B2B perspective. Yeah, definitely. And I think you know a big reason that clients are still adopting WordPress at quite a speed is that the kind of ecosystem that surrounds it gives them a lot of flexibility um, they know that there's a large pool of developers there's um, a lot of options in terms of how they continue working with wordpress but as you say yeah it's very easy to integrate with all kinds of different things so mm. a lot of our clients will sometimes use landing pages that are hosted by a hubspot or a pod so they might use those for kind of paid campaigns paid channels or they might use wordpress landing pages and then just have the forms embedded on them it, it varies slightly based on client preference i don't think there's necessarily a right or wrong i think for for some kind of very conversion focused yeah conversion focused sites or landing pages which is you know you're running through a ppc campaign or a linkedin ad or something you can set them up on a kind of non-indexed uh landing page on on hubspot or something whereas other landing pages you might want to be kind of on your main site findable through google or findable on the sitemap etc but yeah it's uh it's definitely a big plus of working with WordPress, it's just very easy being able to 
to integrate all of these tools uh, into the mix. Another thing that I'm reflecting on in terms of what you've just said is that with B2B websites, there's the you talked about UX expectations and setting the expectations for users within the design. And I think what I see from a B2B perspective is still sometimes, again, I'm making a bit of a generalization here, but sometimes the tactic being used where let's not put that information on our website because that will encourage people to pick up the phone and ask us these questions. Yeah. How much how much do you subscribe to that thought process? I don't think I do really at all. And and I think that only changes more with with time. I think we're in a particularly now and particularly given the last how many months since COVID first struck, being able to give as much away as possible and as easily as possible, I think is is really important. I don't think that you know, more and more research keeps coming out showing how much of the B2B buyer journey more generally starts with a Google or starts with some kind of organic search and starts with some kind of digital research. There was a, a report from Gartner recently which backed that up. And I think those numbers will just keep on increasing as people spend more time on the computer, as digital increases, as a younger generation of decision makers who are used to turning to Google continues to do so. I think there's certain industries, you know, legal tech we've worked with and financial, you know, some fintechs and stuff where they are targeting a uh, a demographic who is typically a 50 year old plus male who works in it and yeah there might be some merits in suggesting that you know they don't want to do stuff by google they they make decisions based on relationship everything's done over a handshake but i think those numbers just go down drastically uh, mm. year on year and, and even more so given everything that's happened this year yeah you talked earlier about there being certain principles between b2b and b2c websites which are applicable across the board and this is one area where i think that's true and it sounds like there's a um, research to suggest that's true as well in in that I think that level of transparency, I can't remember the phrase that you used, uh, setting, managing and setting expectations. Yeah. I think at one point in time, maybe a decade, decade ago, maybe 15 years ago, there were distinct differences between how B2B and B2C websites were presented in terms of the information that they supplied. But that's Definitely. becoming less and less so. Yeah, Actually, I think from a from a conversion angle too, more generally, just on that point, hmm. it's it's really conversion limiting to not include clear indication of what the user should expect next, right? And I think hmm. there's a, a fintech client that we work with, which is a really good example of where we they basically just had a contact page on their website, which you filled out a form and it said thanks for your message, and that was pretty much it. You didn't really have much indication of anything. They also had a kind of um, set up a free account. They're a, a fintech SaaS platform. Hmm. And their marketing site allowed people to basically start the account creation process um, and then open a, a test account. And um, the steps involved in that were, again, it just wasn't clear what they were going to be asking for next. You just kept, kept, kept clicking next and it asked for more information. And we redesigned that completely so that we had you know, little numbers along the top. So, you know, you're on step one or four. Um, this is step two. And uh, lots of small indicators and UI, UX elements that just gave people a sense of, what was coming next and what we were going to be asking of them. And we saw conversion rates go up accordingly once that was launched. So, yeah, I think giving people a really clear idea of what to expect and what's coming up is is really key. Well, it makes me think about live chat. And I know live chat's not a new thing, but I think we all experienced it most commonly with B2C websites, and we've got pretty used to that. Yeah. Uh, but for me personally, just as a consumer, I expect live chat, or at least I find live chat useful on mm -hmm. service-based and on B2B sites. 
and I'm just thinking from my experience for, uh, from a marketing perspective, I know when we've made that recommendation to at least explore live chat as a marketing function or as a conversion function for the clients that we worked in the past, yeah. I feel like generally it's been met with some reluctance. But based on what you're saying, it feels like that's not a bad thing to experiment with because, as you've said, the the lines are blurring a little bit between B2C and B2B expectations when, when a user's landing on that website. Yeah, I think there's some merits to, to exploring live chat. I, I would say that actually the same fintech client that I mentioned, I think had a bad experience with it in that they didn't invest enough in the kind of people and training and process side of who was actually manning that live chat. How were they talking? Yeah, they had some issues with, I think, quite kind of casual, almost text-like language being used across, you know, talking to clients and prospects and stuff. And it's one of those, it just made me think, although it might seem obvious to some of us, you need to, as with most things in digital and marketing generally, it's not about the tool, it's about the people and process that are behind it. And so I think you have to do some thinking about how you're going to use it, who's going to be using it. Is it marketing? Is it sales? Is it a BDR, an account exec, or you know, who's there? And what's the goal of using it? So I guess that's the live chat side. I think chatbots too are quite interesting. I, I feel like there's just generally a lot of hype around these things and actual usage and adoption and results have been mixed. I think in some some cases, you know, they've obviously been a success for, for a number of businesses, but I think lots of other businesses have tried them and and not um not seeing the same results for them. But you know, I'm a big big believer in the kind of testing mentality. So with most of these things, it's pretty low barrier to entry to give them a go. I'm interested to know uh, just working. I know a lot of our listeners are probably still using WordPress sites, and I'm curious to tap into your experience and your interest in into the the third party tools and services available for WordPress. So plugins. Are there any go-tos for you that are kind of there every time that you use for every website or just tools or plugins or services that you just love using because they really represent the WordPress community well and they're just quality products? Yeah, so we work very closely with a hosting company called WP Engine who you might have come across. So from a um, hosting angle, we work uh, a lot with them and we're one of just a few of their top tier of partner in the UK. But that really is because we love them and uh, they do a great job for us. They they make our life extremely easy, built-in backups and good performance features and all of those kind of things. So uh, that's a, a really key service and pretty much every one of our clients ends up hosting with them. I'm a big fan of Cloudflare. I don't know whether you've come across it, yeah. but um, that's a great tool to kind of layer on top of. Um, and WP Engine actually have an integration of sorts with them, but you can use it separately too. Um, and that, that has some really nice features from a security and from a speed angle. Obviously with core cool web vitals and kind of recent updates to google and how they're going to be measuring performance of sites speed is mm. near the top of the list on all the almost all the briefs we get at the moment and so we're always looking at how we can push things forward on that front so those are a couple that are more kind of infrastructure focused i guess we work quite a lot with advanced custom fields within wordpress so a really nice way even with the new gutenberg editor of, of building out customized blocks that that users can um, work with within the CMS without necessarily needing a, a full team of like deeply specialist React developers to custom build every Gutenberg block. So Gutenberg's the new editor within WordPress. It's a really nice kind of flexible system for editing content, but it's a bit of a, a technological change for a lot of WordPress developers. And so using custom fields and similar is a, a nice way of bridging that gap. I guess other than that, it's the usual kind of Yoast for SEO. Rank Math is a plugin that we've been seeing more and more of on the SEO front, which seems to be rising in popularity quite a lot. 
gravity forms comes up quite a lot for any forms again most of our clients are now integrating with a hubspot pardot marketo-esque external data capture source rather than doing that within wordpress and i think equally with all of the gdpr changes that have happened we need to be careful about storing data kind of inside the wordpress database ideally we would just feed that through into the client's own system and that keeps things much easier from a gdpr data processing angle so those are a few things that come up regularly i guess as a general rule of thumb we try to keep plugins to to some limit on on a site just so that sites remain running as stable and quick and secure as possible over the medium to long term as well Um, but there's definitely a few that pop up regularly as we're talking about plugins and services and uh, things that you use and you're interested in and like using i'm curious to know of course we can share your website link and give the examples of your websites that you build but are there any b2b websites that you commonly refer back to whether that's just because you love their design you love their functionality you love what they do from a conversion perspective that aren't built by you Oh, good question. Uh, I thought you were going to ask me for ones that we had built or clients. So, um, <laughs> well, you're welcome um, to share okay. those as well. If there are, if, <laughs> yeah, um, any that you haven't built, um, and also any that you have. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think. I mean, there's a few big B2B tech kind of SaaS companies which I think generally do a good job with their site. There's a few that actually probably come up on a lot of briefs that we get. It's things like uh, Drift and Segment and um, those kind of Martech focus sites which you know, being in the marketing landscape and you know using some of these tools we've just talked about like chatbots and other things mm. um and, you know they do a good job of using them themselves so yeah those are those are nice examples of quite i guess there's always a bit of a and it probably comes up on twitter and linkedin and i occasionally see these posts where people are complaining that all tech company websites kind of look the same and someone will attach like 12 different screenshots of a tech company website and be like oh they're all the same and I get that, but I also get that you know, with everything we've just said and been talking about from a user experience angle, mm. there's a reason why a lot of that works. And yep. you know, with a lot of these sites, they perform really well. Yeah, they might not be changing the game and completely reinventing the wheel, but to some extent, we have to accept that they are highly usable and they perform really well. And you know, I always laugh at when uh, sites get referenced, which are kind of they've won awards at the webbies or you know all of these kind of things and you click on them and they're like from a design angle and from a creative angle you're like wow this is really mind-blowing <laughs> but then you think actually i don't i have no idea where the menu is i don't know how to scroll it's hijacking everything i'm doing when i move my mouse around and from a user experience angle it's really really poor so there is this this way up of being visually impressive and creating interactive immersive experiences but at the same time you know as we've talked about this has to deliver from a marketing angle and unfortunately those two things can work in opposition to to one another and you you do kind of have to pick one or the other eventually Mm. so it's an interesting challenge plus balancing that out with seo and content and so it is a a constant kind of juggling act between lots of priorities and making sure that we, we balance them all fairly yeah, that's a tough conflict and a tough world for a designer at the moment or anyone in creative. Mm. And it reminds me of something I only shared with our team this week. And I can't remember who created it, but I will share it in the uh, the notes of this podcast. But someone had created a 2021 logo design video. And it was all about how uh, I can't re- I, I saw it on LinkedIn. and It was just about how companies are changing their logos to be more simple, to take up less screen space, to remove gradients and just to keep them really simple and basic and the whole video was around why that's happening because of 
declining attention spans because of mobile first um, use. And the principles in that video, I thought, applied to web design as well, in that we're at a point of a tipping point of kind of creativity and user experience where me personally, as a user, as a consumer, I really like in what you just said in terms of the the creative side of these websites it doesn't really bother me. I'm interested in getting in and out. I'm interested in finding what I want, subscribing and everything to be simple. And I really like that experience. And that experience reflects well on the company. And that makes me happy as a customer. But I do think that I do think and I do see the argument for the fact that where does creativity come in this mix? And is creativity being sacrificed for user experience because of the attention spans and distractions that I just spoken about? Yeah, it's a real tough one. Um, I think there's a certain type of creative or designer that thinks that immersive experiences are just about immersive experiences. But as you've just pointed out, the experience is really about getting to what you want as quickly mm. as possible. Or it's not about visually impressing someone or them opening the website and going, wow, this is cool. Like that's for me that's just that that means absolutely nothing in terms of reaction yeah i think we often say to the team now that we, we get almost two types of inquiry from clients one is we're looking for a, an update to our shop window and one is you know we need a new digital marketing machine hmm. and you can probably tell based on everything we've said that we only will really ever take on the second type of project if if a client just views the website as you know basically a interactive calling cards that just needs to look nice now, that's not really aligned with how we view how a website should work for a client how it really should support marketing overall um so yeah a tricky one for sure but and, and as you know from an seo angle too like trying to balance ux and seo is a, is a mm. tricky one too like we could design sites which were basically just text on a page that's really lightweight and really well structured and google would love it but it would offer a terrible user experience as well um, so it's, it's just trying to trying to balance all of these things out can be can be a challenge. But you know, fortunately, Google provide a lot of guidelines and are quite transparent about what good looks like. Um, even though obviously they're a bit shady about you know, how SEO works overall, and they'd rather it didn't exist. But um, there's enough out there to kind of guide what a good user experience should look like. Before I let you go, and before we uh, kind of close out the podcast, I did want to ask you that question uh, in terms of your examples of the websites that you built. Are there any that stand out to you as just examples that you're particularly proud of that I can link to in the show? Yeah, so um, two probably jump out at me. One is a site for Mighty, Mighty.com, so that's M-I-T-I-E.com, who are a big facilities management business. So they're kind of 50,000 employees across the UK, you know, cleaning airports and London bus stops and all kinds of different um, services and sectors security all kinds of things that was a really great project based on what i said earlier with that evidence approach evidence-based approach really um driving the project so quite a traditional sales journey business done offline old school from a kind of sales and new business angle and this project we delivered was really i think eye-opening for the whole business about how digital marketing can support a business like theirs and again they didn't think that leads would convert through a website but they now do and so it's it's caused a lot of change and uh been a really positive vehicle for change more widely across across such a huge organization which is exciting for us and then um we work with a b2b client called cadence which i always like to talk about too which went live in august but um so that's cadence.com cadence with a k and um we did a lot of seo work driving that project and 
uh, I wish every case study looked a bit like this, but we quite literally put the site live, I think on like the 4th of August or something. And all of the research and the site map and content we've been writing in the background and everything else, it was like taking the lid off a box with a spring in it. Like the site was so bad before from a UX and content angle, but it was quite an old business, good backlink profile, global business. And so it really was just primed and ready to go. And it was like unleashing this content and site map <laughs> and UX on it. And it just, I've never seen anything like it in terms of how it took off pretty much overnight. And obviously the number of leads and all the other things coming in off the back of it. So you can tell probably from how I, how I talk about these things that when we start to see real hard results coming in off the back of them, um, it's what gets me most excited. So those are a couple of examples. Brilliant. And that takes our conversation full circle, actually, to your beginning and why the company exists in the first place and how you ended up in this position. So before I let you go, do you want to let our listeners know where they can find out more about you personally and your company? Yeah, sure. So 93digital.co.uk. I'm on LinkedIn at uh, Alex Price. Otherwise, my email is alex at 93digital.co.uk if anyone wants to drop me a message. But thanks for listening. Brilliant. Thanks. That's been a really interesting episode. So uh, thanks so much for coming on, for sharing your experience and everything that we've discussed today will be linked in the show notes. For now, I'll let you go, Alex, and say thank you very much. And uh, this has been the Internet Marketing Podcast. Thanks, Scott. If you want to understand how marketing is changing and how that will affect your brand, you need Future Proof, the podcast from Kantar that tells you how to find growth. Created in conjunction with Side Business School at Oxford University, the Future Proof podcast provides a unique perspective on what truly makes a difference. To understand what's winning in marketing, subscribe to Future Proof, a Kantar podcast now. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.